Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an American writer, activist, and the CEO or Chief Existential Officer of Climate Clock. His new book, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope and Gallows Humour, offers a manual for processing the existential questions evoked by climate change. Andrew Boyd, welcome to Meet the Writers. I'm very happy to be here, Jornita. Thank you. I am told you're a titan of the environmental world, is how you were described to me initially. Well, that person has a really poor sense of perspective. Well, that person was Brian Eno, so I think he's probably not wrong. All right. But, well... (laughs) Yes, we love Brian Eno, uh, but he may have been over, over, overselling at that time. Well, this book, I think, is just such a breath of fresh air. It's an extraordinary work. It's clearly produced by a lifetime of study, and it certainly provokes an enormous amount of thought. And I'd like to go back to where that all began for you, because obviously we're all aware that we're living in a climate crisis. But what, 45 years ago, maybe 20 years ago when you were born, it wasn't that. (laughs) Now you're overselling me. (laughs) It wasn't that apparent. How did you first become aware of the state of the world? Well, I think the big moment came, as it does for many people, when your politics form in, you know, late teenagehood and early college years. And at the time, which I will date myself now to more accurately correct the record here, which was in the the early 80s, let's say, and there was a moment of heightened nuclear tensions between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, accelerated weapons programs by the U.S., triggering sort of a more fragile, anxious moment in that crisis and and initiatives, citizen-led initiatives to reduce nuclear weapons stockpiles and I got involved in that. Nuclear freeze in the U.S. and moves towards disarmament or armaments and reduction. And so I was like, oh, there was a moment when I was in California taking a year off in college and I hitchhiked and jumped freight trains out to California, did a kind of a a my Kerouacian moment. And I got involved in direct action to stop the next round of nuclear weapons production at the Los Alamos sister lab, Lawrence Livermore, just east of San Francisco, and engaged in a direct action there. And and the night before, engaged in a nonviolence training. And it was all a very sort of sudden stepping up into putting my body on the line to stop something that felt like where the fate of the earth was at stake and got arrested with like 1,300 other people blocking the gates of the major nuclear weapons laboratory in the United States. And that sort of shocked me into a kind of both an awareness, like almost a body-level alchemical shift in my understanding that the world is, there's so much at stake, and the they that we trust to sort of be managing it, they don't have our best interest at stake, and they are as error-prone as anyone, and it is up to all of us to save the world, to make it better, to keep it from going totally off course. So it was a a sort of sense of cosmic responsibility, which I've been burdened with ever since, and it's a mixed blessing. (laughs) But you do do a lot of this through humour. I mean, so for instance, you led the satirical media campaign Billionaires for Bush. Tell us about that. Right. Um, There was a fake organisation of extremely wealthy people dressed up in tiaras and boas and uh, Texan oil billionaire hats and tuxedos and all that stuff, marching in the streets, demanding... That we've paid for another, it was during the Bush-Gore election, during Bush's attempt to be re- re-elected for another four years, and we were like, we've paid for eight years, you know. <laughs> um, Carrie Edwards, where's the greed? You know, just like, take take to your phones, take to your, uh, take to your cell phones, take to your faxes, join the fight to end all taxes, you know, <laughs> kinds of chants like this. So it was a whole fake organization that just 
used humor to make the point that big money had taken over the electoral system, both parties, but the Republican Party even more so. The previous four years ago, we had run a campaign called Billionaires for Bush or Gore, just making clear that it was a system-wide corruption. And, you know, we had 100 chapters across the U.S. that happened like lightning just because of a meme orientation and the humor. And it was a way of talking about very serious political things, making a very deep critique about corporate capture of democracy without pointing fingers in the same normal way, without blaming people, without being strident, without speechifying, but in a way that captured people's imagination, treated them with intelligence because of the humor and the slyness of the messaging. And then people like to dress up and people like to come up with fake names. Mine was Phil T. Rich, Phil T. Rich. Uh, <laughs> there were others like Gen, gentrification, uh, et cetera. And so everyone got to step into this identity and in a very fun way that felt like you were part of a all the theater nerds from high school, you know, who now were sort of front and center in the nation's discourse kind of a moment. And it was, uh, it showed the effectiveness of humor, the effectiveness of a creative approach, the effectiveness of a outside the box kind of approach. And it captured crazy amounts of media attention. And I think it was a model to other, to the wider movement of the role that art and creativity and humor playfulness, moxie, slyness, et cetera, could play. And you also then went on to co-found Agitprop Communications and you created the grief storytelling ritual, the Climate Ribbon. Tell us about that. Sure. The Agitprop Communications was a creative agency for the revolution, arguably, and we did all kinds of viral videos and stunts and things like that. Maybe one that was celebrated a bit and relates to environmental causes was a TV ad called Exxon Hates Your Children. Anyway, I think you can still find that online, you know, and we played it right in the media market where Exxon's international headquarters was in Texas and things like that. And then, as for many people who've worked on many causes, climate increasingly becomes a focus of grave concern and a place where so many of the movements intersect together in a climate justice framework. And so... A couple of my colleagues that I've worked with on these various projects came together realizing that there was a lot of grieving that was hard to do, hard to speak about, hard to know what, how to feel or what to do with people who were going through it as individuals about what was happening and what was predicted to happen to our world. Ecosystems, species, Miami going under the water, the impacts on both humans and the natural world that we saw beginning and saw coming from climate change. So how do we grieve that in a way that doesn't demobilize us? Mm. How do we grieve that in a way that brings us together and helps us move from through our climate grief to climate action? So we came up with this thing called the Climate Ribbon. And it, it drew from many traditions from many different cultures of prayer flags and hanging messages in trees or putting them into little lanterns and in, in, in the water. But basically, it was inviting people to answer a question, two questions. One, what do I love too much to lose. And then just sit with that. Don't like write polar bear down like immediately. Don't go to that. I want to not feel this and exit through the pat answer, but really sit with that. Something very personal, something that matters to you more than, you know, as much as life itself. And people would say things like Miami, my city, or winter as a separate season, or the one that I would kept coming to after doing the ritual myself was um, the kindness among strangers. There was a eight-year-old that we worked with in one of the most devastated regions of New York City by the big hurricane, Hurricane Sandy, and he had almost lost everything. He lived in a public housing right in the front lines of the impacts. And he wrote, my books, my toys, my apartment, my friends, my mom, because he'd almost lost all of that. 
and he didn't want to lose it again. So that's what, that's what he loved more that he didn't want to lose and that sort of gave him skin in the game and all these things that gave people skin in the game. So everyone wrote this on these ribbons and then attached it to, sometimes we built a huge sculptural tree at these big climate mobilizations in New York or Paris. Sometimes it was just passed around a basement, a church basement in a local climate group. But everyone passed their ribbons around. And if you found one that someone else made that was particularly moved you, you wouldn't leave it hanging on the tree. You would actually untie it from the tree of these thousands of ribbons from all over the world of people, people writing these messages. And you would then tie it or have someone tie it onto your own wrist. And then you became the guardian of what someone else, some stranger, you know, was their, their sacred thing mm-hmm. that they needed us all to fight for, to defend and protect. And you knew that someone else was doing that for you. So it was this beautiful weaving together of, we called it like intimate solidarity that helped to build the social movement and move people through their grief to action. And then the next question we asked, well, what are you going to do about it? And so there you are. And another global initiative that you started was the Climate Clock. Yeah. You know, as Bill McKibben, one of the leading climate voices in the United States, wrote the first book about climate 30 years ago, when we should have listened to him, said, climate change is a time test. If we win later, we lose. So we're on a very intense, very strict timeline. We need to transition from fossil fuel-based economy to a renewable-based economy as fast as possible. And there's very strict markers for when we need to do that before worse and worse impacts kick in. So basically, this effort, this existential challenge needs a clock. We need to know whether we're on schedule or not. And there wasn't one, or there were half-hearted attempts at them. And so a number of colleagues, once again, this sort of creative troupe of people who've been doing these various projects you've been asking me to describe, got together and said, we need a clock. And we ought to build one. And we made it, you know, but let's do this in a big way. This is, a, this is for the whole world. So we reached out to some of our NGO friends and proposed this. And they were like, meh, meh, meh. And then, so a year later, we get an email from one of those NGOs saying, Greta, Greta Thunberg, she's coming to New York City. She's going to speak at the UN and she wants a clock. And we're like, we asked you to fund this properly a year ago, and here you are nine days before Greta's going to walk in and give the Gettysburg Address of the climate movement to the UN Secretary General and every head of state, and we have nine days to build this clock? Anyway, that's how the movement works, and sometimes you just have to say, okay, and you stepped up. So we just put out the bat signal and pulled all our creatives together, and we built the first handheld climate clock in nine days using the gold standard of climate science from the IPCC and the uh, MCC in Berlin that calculates carbon budgets. And it basically counts how fast we're burning through our carbon budget to stay under 1.5 degrees centigrade. And that calculates out to a certain amount of years. At the time, it was seven years and some. And we built it, set it running, got it to Greta the night before of her speech. Unfortunately, nobody told UN Security that she was going to walk in the door with it the next morning. So it didn't make it in her plan. And she had custom ordered this and we agreed on the science that should be in it and all that stuff. And uh, she was going to give it to the UN Secretary General and say, this is our timeline. Look at it every morning. Let's set our watches by it. Let's synchronize our watches our climate clocks across the world by this. And so we didn't get it in the UN, but a year later we put up a huge clock. There was a big temporal-based artwork in Union Square, one of the main centers in New York City. And we talked to the artists and they were like, yes, we want to turn that sort of difficult to decipher temporal artwork into a climate clock. Mm. And we were like, incredible. When do you ever talk to an artist and say, we want our art to replace your art? And they say, yes. <laughs> so that's the sort of sign of everyone's, you know, it's going to take everyone to do everything. And people realize people want to be part of the solution. So we put this huge climate clock up in New York City. And then that went 
viral globally, and we said this is the most important number in the world. It needs to be everywhere. Put up clocks like this in your cities, and if you want a clock like Greta's handheld clock, we're making them in our little workshop <laughs> in Brooklyn, and you can have one. And now they're all over the world in the hands of activists, grassroots activists, youth activists, all over the world, six continents, and. Walking this portable scientific instrument in from the streets, in from the protest settings, into the halls of power, and saying you need to get on this timeline. And I'll just note that the clock is going to tick over from six years to five years on July twenty second of this year, coming up in forty some days, and that's Climate Emergency Day. And people all over the world can use that moment of climate urgency, this larger context of like here is our timeline and here's how close we're getting. To just emphasizing the need for urgent action at scale and use it to advance your own causes, advance your own work, and you can find out a lot more about it at climateclock.world. Climateclock.world, not .org, not .com, .world. It's one of the new domains. All right, no, I mean, that's the answer. It's, it's absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot more to say about that, but it's absolutely fascinating, and it feeds in, of course, to this book. I want a better catastrophe. And I mean, I guess the principle of it is, as you say in your prologue, it's the end of the world. Now what? Right. So that's a bit of a uh, flip, you know, it is a book of humor. We need to provoke ourselves. We need to sort of be playful, even with the very dire. But I mean, we're screwed. Just how screwed are we? Exactly. So thus we come to the notion of better catastrophe. So the book came about, you know, you can tell from my history, all the questions, you know, that you're asking me about a long history of engagement and hope driven action. You know, as Nelson Mandela says, it always feels impossible until it's done. That kind of driver of hope is powering me through many of these efforts and actions and movements. And we've we've won a bunch of things or or at least stalemated the worst of things, you know. And then came around to climate change and was working on that very much in these various ways we're talking about. And then I sort of hit a moment where it's it's too late. It's too late to stay under 1.5. Bill McKibben talks about staying under three now. The UN Secretary General is issuing dire and dire warnings of how narrow the chance is for us. Everything has to line up for us to stay under 1.5, et cetera. So it's like, wow, we're not going to hit some of these targets. How are we supposed to feel about that? What is our strategy from there? What is the story we tell? What is still worth doing as uh, other environmental activists are sort of fr framing it? So for me, it became we're, we're headed for a catastrophe. Some version of catastrophe seems unavoidable. How do we get the best one that's still available to us? And what does that look like? And how do we wrap our hearts around orienting ourselves to that goal? Because that's not usually how we think about things. We're always like, try to get through it. You know, it, it gets better. And maybe it's going to get worse, but we just have to get the best version of worse. And yeah, so it was very sobering, but it also brought the standard tool set of humor and creativity and bringing your best self to this task, you know, and trying to be trying to be honest, but bring all the best qualities of that humans bring to these challenges to mm -hmm. it at the same time. And so you end up with oxymorons like a better catastrophe or, as you say, it's the end of the world. Now what? Or, you know, we're not headed off a cliff, just down a sharp, slippery slope, you know, <laughs> or do we focus on mitigation, adaptation or suffering? All three, especially suffering, you know, whatever these kind of dark, dark humor is a way to be honest about the situation, but also find, identify what, what there is for us to do, right? On the one hand, not to fall into doom and despair on one end, because it is not all over, right? 
and also not to pretend that things are better than they are, not to sort of inject hopium into our veins, you know, because that feels like a disservice to people, right? You're deluding yourself and you're deluding others. So what is, how can we be both honest and engaged? So it's like tries to find that pathway and there's a lot of difficult landscape to navigate. And in that middle p- place. part of the way you do that is through this extraordinary flowchart you have in the middle of the book, which uh, opens out across, what, six pages. It's a uh, bonus content, if you like. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, one of the things that keeps coming up mm. is that people just try not to think about it. Yes. Is it understandable? And I try to be forgiving in the book towards myself and towards all of us trying to tackle this. But it's, realistically, it's, what can we do? I mean, if we, we separate our recycling, we try and live a good life, we all the rest of it, give up our petrol cars. It's not enough. No. And yet, can we as individuals do any well, more it's, than that's that? A, you're, making a, you're bringing up an important point, you know, as individuals. So um, that's another tricky place people get shipwrecked, I think, in this, is that we've been told that this is an individual problem. That was a deliberate PR campaign. BP hired a global PR firm, to come up with the concept of individual carbon footprint in order to sort of shirk their responsibility, in order for the solutions not to be focused on them and on structural change and on phasing out fossil fuels as fast as possible, but rather everyone sort of being all guilty and policing their own individual carbon footprint, which is way insufficient to the task. So I argue in the book, you know, since I can swear online, I will, quoting one of the chapter titles, uh, why the fuck am I recycling? You know, and that's a question I think everybody asks. And it's partly because it's held up as the thing to do. It's held up and we beat ourselves up morally about it. And the way I argue that it is a worthwhile thing to do, but only in the context of understanding how insufficient it is. And what is really required is is mass collective action and structural change. We need to force the power holders, whether that's in business or in politics, through mass organizing and uprising and legal challenges like are starting to happen in Montana just this week. And in, you know, in Holland, there's been some very innovative legal stuff and mass mobilizations on the streets, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Fridays for the Future, etc., as well as actually... There is some work to be done in pricking the conscience of those who have power. That is also in the mix, though that's also insufficient. But political power needs to be wielded to phase out fossil fuels as fast as possible. And there's many ways to do this. I think I mentioned at the event with Brian Eno that you were at, there's a number of really interesting initiatives that are trying to cut off to the fossil fuel industry essential, the essential resources they need, whether that's money or insurance company to continue to insure their carbon bomb, new infrastructure projects, pipelines and the like, or creative talent through this very interesting organization called Clean Creatives that's got 650 creative agencies to refuse to work with the fossil fuel industry. And there's all kinds of movements along those lines to force, to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and explode renewables and do it with a justice lens and with an, with an eye towards protecting the most vulnerable and writing, you know, long overlooked historic injustices. So that's part of what the climate justice movement globally is all about. And I can't stress enough how darkly witty this book is too. I mean, one of Thank the uh, one of the chapter titles is "We've met the enemy and he is us." No, them, but also us, but mostly. Them. But mostly them. <laughs> right, uh, we don't example. have a lot of time left, but no. really. I want to ask about the fact that you say another end of the world is possible. So hope and hopelessness, how does that work? Well, part, in part of the book, I interviewed, I went and interviewed eight leading climate thinkers in the United States. Adrian Marie Brown, 
Gopal Dayaneni, one of the leading voices in the climate justice movement, Robin Wall Kimmerer, indigenous botanist, and others, Tim DeChristopher, a very venerated climate activist in the United States, etc. And with an eye to ask them lots of questions, you know, how do you do hope, for example, but also what is what is a better catastrophe look like to you? I, I chose people who were not pretending things were better than they were, that already realized that, you know, some level of catastrophe was built into the trajectory that, you know, we've failed to get off. So Gopal Dayaneni said, well, we're going to we're going to suffer. So let's distribute that suffering most equitably, as equitably as we can. So for him, a better catastrophe is centering justice. Adrian Marie Brown, community organizer, healer, author of Emergent Strategy, said, yes, we're in for a hard fall. So let's fall as if we were holding a child on our chest, you know, and sort of turning our backs to the ground. And so protecting those we most love, the places and people we most love, those least able to protect themselves, you know, either they're on frontline communities or in vulnerable populations. So there's Joanna Macy, eco-philosopher, another person I interviewed. So all of these people, I had these lengthy interviews with, they're all in the book and they all have this extraordinary amount of wisdom that for the reader and also that gets woven into the, into the sort of narrative of the book. It's basically a quest for like, what kind of hope serves us in this moment? You know, how do we achieve the best catastrophe still available to us? And Joanna Macy said, we don't have to know how this is going to turn out to still be of service. We don't actually know whether we are hospice workers of a dying world or midwives of a new world. Let's step forward and be of service to fellow humans and to all living beings. You know, she has a more a very Buddhist perspective informed by the Buddha Dharma. I learned that, you know, hope is not a, a mood or a thing you feel. It's a practice. It's an ethos. It's a choice. It's a muscle. And there's many different kinds of hope. In the book, there's uh, distinguishing between like a passive hope where you sit around sort of figuring, you know, like hoping that things will be okay. And that's not very engaged. That's pretty useless. It may give you a little bit of peace of mind. And then there's a um, heroic hope where you're like, yeah, I'm going to fix the future. You know, I, I can control the future by inventing it, you know, and it's like a sort of hyper, hyper kind of hope. Now, both those kinds of hope rely on results. You know, and they'll, they might crash and burn if you don't get certain kind of results. So there's two other kinds of hope. Stoic hope, which is just hang in there. We've survived this. We can survive anything. A real resilient kind of hope. And that isn't dependent on results, but is also not that proactive. And so there's a fourth kind of hope that I think is the one we need, which is a, what's known as a grounded hope, which is the kind of hope where you're, it's about your character and your calling and doesn't depend on results. It doesn't necessarily promise you that you're going to get through the darkness, but it shows you how to walk through it. The poet Gary Snyder was asked, you know, why do this, you know, as a sort of self-respect for yourself, do it to have good good existential style. You know, so there's an important way to distinguish between that sort of fragile optimism and results-based hope that's not going to work for us and a more grounded in your character and calling and in the work of it, in the sense that you're doing this for kindness and for solidarity and for self-respect, there's a lot of other reasons to motivate. You know, you're doing what's right because it's right, not because you're promising yourself or someone else a certain kind of result. And it's like a, yeah, we all have to step up into our highest and best selves in this moment. And that's how you can be most useful, as well as, I think, possibly most mentally healthy, most grounded. So it's, it's not an easy task, but there's some tools in the book to do that. And if you want to check it out before buying, bettercatastrophe.com has a bunch of the samples and the flow chart that was mentioned. Uh, so please check it out, bettercatastrophe.com. Georgina, thank you so much. And uh, thank you to everyone who's willing to 
look at this squarely and and uh, hope the book is of service to you. Absolutely. I think it is a very, very important book and one that we really all need to read. And uh, even if we are hugely aware of the catastrophe that we're facing, uh, I think you won't find a better book that explains it with humour and also gives us hope. Andrew Boyd, thank you so much for talking to me. Georgina, thank you. I want a better catastrophe. Navigating the climate crisis with grief, hope and gallows humour is by Andrew Boyd. It's published by New Society Publishers and you can find out more about it on the website bettercatastrophe.com. You've been listening to Meet the Writers. Thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Helmi Pillai and Callum McLean. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Thank you.